Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Rooney House. I know you've had a hard day. It's about to get harder. Uh, I have another um, a behaviorist, a psychologist, who uh, um, his students, he used to pace when he walked, and his students noticed that he didn't like coughs. So every time he reached the, the swing of the pacing, they would cough and try and reduce the amount that he walked backwards and forwards. Uh, since I always stand in front of the slides, maybe if I start going across like this, you'll... No, cough occasion. Yeah, thank you very much, thank you. <laughs> You'll come out with asthma, there's no mathematics. Uh, you're very, very welcome. A particular welcome to people who may be, if this bloke is to be believed and he looks untrustworthy, uh, watching us online. Uh, we have a, a great many students in this department, and some of them do online courses and never meet their teachers. And I have reason to believe that quite a number of my own students in that category are, are watching today. So if you're in the advanced diploma of data and systems analysis, a particular welcome to you. You've never seen me before, or well, you've probably been working with me for a year. Uh, I teach maths and computing courses. Today I'm talking mainly about maths, and we don't seem to have any leaflets on maths courses coming up. But one thing to note is that we do a, a maths weekend in June, trying to sell courses, and it's, it's usually pretty good. Uh, last year um, it was on geometry, doesn't sound exhilarating, but we had people like Roger Penrose talking. It's a, a gentle, not very technical weekend. We, the year before we had... Uh, Turing, we had a Turing weekend. We even bought a birthday cake for it. It was 100 years old. It didn't turn up. It was dead and all. Uh, I'm uh, going to give you a taster of mathematics. Uh, and I'm a bit of a, well, an evangelist for mathematics. It, it is a pity that people's experience of mathematics is so poor. Uh, it is a pity, uh, my department is very anxious for me not to be controversial that our education system is so dire with respect to mathematics. So much of what happens at school mathematics is dull, repetitive, and boring. And if, if you have taught kids preparing for these exams, as I have recently, you will realize how much dullness is there. We seem to squeeze the, the, the joy out of the subject, and there's a lot of joy to be had. Some of it, of course, is in this department. Uh, I'm going to, my name's Bob Lockhart. Let's see if I can work this thing. And that's the title of the talk. Uh, that's me. And if you um, want to get hold of me, there's an email address that I carefully made to be illegible there. <laughs> and that's me, not the guy you saw before. Uh, I want to talk about a, a few sort of fun things in mathematics, including some of its major banalities, uh, the idea of infinity, which people even write books about. But it has, to some extent, been tamed and made rigorous. Uh, there are lots of books on infinity. You can go down to Blackboard, as I did during the lunch hour, and, and find books on infinity and popular books too. In the early days, people got involved in processes that seemed in some sense to be unending. And these processes, I know this is vague at the moment, I, I hope to make it a bit more precise, these processes were actually useful. Archimedes fitted polygons to circles on the inside and the outside, getting upper and lower bounds on the area of a circle, and achieving, by this means, an approximation for pi that we use to the present day, 22 over 7. So these things were useful, and there are two flavours of infinity that, that concern me. Processes that seem to go on forever, rather like this talk, and the idea that you can have a, a set or an object that is infinite in some sense. And that was something that caused problems to the medieval mind and to the classical mind, but it's something that, by and large, modern mathematics embraces. And it is our attempt to embrace that idea that leads to all sorts of things that are a little bit puzzling, a little bit humorous, a little bit disturbing sometimes, and once in a while, inconsistent. And that's the sort of thing I'm going to be talking about today. 
Um, anyway, the, the champion that, that I found for the idea of pro infinite processes was Aristotle, who apparently is the guy on the left, although I wouldn't believe it, and William of Ockham championed the idea of the actual existence of, of infinity. William of Ockham, Ockham was a student of Oxford. He didn't finish. Um, Aristotle didn't need to get into Oxford. <laughs> now, this is Zeno. Have you heard of, how many people have heard of the paradoxes of Zeno? You, get, you know the idea, it's, it's, a, it's like so many aspects of this topic. It's the sort of thing that irritates small children, or that the Victorians wrote in their endless magazines for you know, Christmas fun and this sort of thing. It's, it's the notion of a sequence of moves that seems to be unending, with the additional notion that there is a paradox built into it. And this is the idea. Here's our frog. It's not me. And it jumps. Uh, this is exactly one unit long, it might be a meter or a foot or a mile, whatever. So one's there, zero's there, it's the number line, which we teach in schools these days. And at the first jump, the frog goes to a half. At the second jump, he goes to a quarter. The third jump to an eighth. The fourth jump to a sixteenth. If we divide his motion into this apparently unending sequence of moves, how can it be that the frog actually reaches one? And that is the idea of the paradox of Zeno. Uh, and to address that answer, well, you expect a, a clear answer. You expect me to say, this is the solution, and you all go home happy. Certainly in the, in the period of around 1916, Bertrand Russell and others thought that this had been solved completely and said so in print. But I might argue that there are opinions on this, and that, that, that these kinds of ideas are more complicated than one might think. If one, if one thinks of it in physical terms, then it is problematic to imagine that space could be infinitely <coughs> subdivided in this way. There's something called the Planck length. And beyond that, the idea of position, the idea of distance, doesn't make physical sense. So the physical construction of this is problematic. The mathematical construction may or may not be solved by our notions of limits. And there's a snake waiting for him at one. Maybe he never gets to it. It's rather a good snake. I haven't seen the apple. That's kind of yes. Uh, Anyway, can, it, can it finite motion be subdivided into an apparently infinite sequence of tiny events? Um, that's more or less what I've been saying up to now, so let's go on, on, on with the idea of infinity, because mathematicians found that it was a useful idea. It comes up all over the place, and to deny the notion as something that exists is to deny us a very rich world. It's just like in the, in, in the medieval period, people found the notion of zero a, a difficult one. But it, it proved to be so useful, we brought it in. And then negative numbers, and then complex numbers. And you still get pulp authors musing about the myster mysterious nature of complex numbers when, in mathematical terms, there's no mystery to be had. Infinity is a bit more complicated than that. This is something that Galileo came up with. If you look at all the whole numbers, and here they are, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, you know these things, you were brought up with them. And you look at their squares, the numbers produced by multiplying the, the numbers by themselves. So 2 squared is 4, 7 squared is 49, and so on. You seem to be able to pair them up. This, this is an unending sequence of numbers, and this is an unending sequence of numbers. One feels that this sequence is in some sense bigger than this sequence, because every one of these is to be found in there, but not the other way around. However, you can pair them up. And this was a, the sort of thing that worried Galileo and worried the Victorian books I've been talking about, but is the way in which we tend to compare infinities. You might have seen this. It worked very well for Angela Merkel. You pair them up. And if you can pair up like that, if you can match things, that, after all, is how you could 
could, could convince yourself that two finite sets had the same number of things. Does anyone play cricket? No? All the women are going, no. <laughs> do, do, do umpires still have stones in their pockets? Well, they can have, or marbles. Marbles? Oh, <laughs> that's modern technology. <laughs> Apparently, uh, so umpires take a stone out of their pocket and put it in the other one, is that right? Yeah. And that way they can, so it's matching up in that kind of way. That's a finite set, but it might be a way of, of, of matching up infinities. And what's in question is not whether this is how we compare the sizes of infinities, because so far I've given you no hope or proof that there are bigger infinities, but whether this is a useful way of looking at things. Because if we do look at infinities in this sort of way, then the infinity of squares is of the same size as the infinity of just ordinary whole numbers. And that's slightly surprising. Infinite sets are not behaving in the way that finite sets do. We can pair things up and there's still bits kind of, you know, that, that, that seem to be bigger. Um, and that is not the case in finite sets. But after all, if we're moving to a different kind of world, the world of the infinite, it is possible to believe that some of the rules will have to change. What's in question is whether they change in a consistent way that we can master and can give us useful <coughs> results. There are other operations that one wishes to do on infinite sets, and sometimes the results are a little bit surprising. This is called Grandi's series. Has anyone ever seen it? It's a series of additions, apparently, that, that is unending, involving plus one and minus one. So there it is, plus one, plus minus one, plus one, plus minus one, plus, and so on. And one way to handle it would be to do something like that, to pair up in that kind of way. And if one did that, then the series emerges as nothing up more than zero plus zero plus zero, and we can be fairly confident that that comes to zero. So that's that put to bed. Then we solve that, except if we pair up in that kind of way, we get one plus zero plus zero plus zero. Uh, and so are these two the same then, because it's the same series? What you might deduce from that is, if you are going to, um, I heard, I heard uh, Paul Erdos say this once, he said that, uh, this is an aside within an aside, uh, he said that, you know this business of a guy discovered x-ray, he left photographic film in a desk, and it was full. Does anyone know that story? <coughs> uh, so this is how he discovered that, you know, there were some rays emanating from pitch blend at photographic plate. Erdos said that a, a previous and distinguished physicist had discovered that if you leave photographic film in a, in a drawer with, with pitch blend, it fogs. And from that, he deduced that you shouldn't leave photographic <laughs> Well, maybe we can deduce that you shouldn't do this kind of operation to this infinite series, uh, because it doesn't work. We get this kind of weird result. Euler, in the early days of, of, kind of symbolic manipulation in mathematics, did this kind of thing all the time, but Euler was a genius. He got away with it. Seeing this kind of thing, he suggested that the sum of the series should be a half. And there are modern theories of divergent series that would come down with a, as a half of that value. The, the trouble is, when you have these conditionally convergent series, as, as, as we call them, you can rearrange them to get any, any sum you like as the answer, any, any kind of group, group, uh, grouping, which is a fabulous result, not one we cover in this department. Okay. Infinite processes can be really unsettling. Now, um, my... Oh, she's supposed to be dancing. I thought she was. Did anyone see her dance? Yeah. She stopped dancing. This is sad. Anyway, my, my artwork is so great that I... I my department's really worried because I've got a reputation for having a loud mouth. Kind of thing. Um, 
no person living or dead is meant by these beautiful pictures. You know, so if you recognise someone, you're wrong. Uh, I'm going to describe a, 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 something a bit like this hopping frog, a process, again, if you like, that, that takes place over a second. I, I, interestingly enough, today I was kind of looking at the Times. The last letter in the Times is about that infinite process today. You can actually see it, no coincidence. But this particular process, um, something's going to happen in the first half second, and then something's going to happen in the next quarter second, and then something's going to happen in the next eighth of a second, and so on. And this is an infinite process for the 16th or 30 second. We never get to one second, but in the limit, I'm going to ask you what the final result will be. But as I say, no people, living or dead, are meant by this picture. <laughs> now, this lady has a bag with an infinite number of euros. And each euro has got a number on it. There's euro number one. There's not only one euro, but there's euro, euro number two, euro number three, euro number four. You know, her coalition partner set this up for her. And she's going to give money to this bloke who's really hard up. <laughs> And in the first half second, she'll give him some money, and he will give her some money back as a fee. In the next quarter of a second, she's going to give him even more money, and he will give a little bit back as a fee. That's the name of the game. Everybody kind of understand what's happening? Okay, I'll now tell you what, what sums are involved. At the start, Angela gives Gail, George 10 euros, numbers 1, 2, 3, up to 10, Okay. This is the first move. Well, it's the first half of the first move because George gives back one euro as a fee for this loan. Everybody understand that first half second? Right. The next quarter second, Angela gives even more money. She gives euros 11 to 100. Okay? Everybody got that? And George gives back, the generous man that he is, <laughs> he had a pay rise for three years, he's really generous, uh, euro number two. Okay, so at this point... Three quarters. Well, it's a sort of fee. Um, okay, interest rates. But it, you, 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 if you're an economist, you'd be worried about this. But there's <laughs> lots of modern economists are worried about. But at this point, Angela has all the the euros above a hundred. George has three up to a hundred. Is that right? And then we go to the next one. Can anyone guess what happens in the next one? It's a. I, I think it's a, an eighth of a second. And Angela will give him. Uh, 101 to 1,000. And George rubs his hand and gives back euro number three. Now, it looks like we're getting to be ahead. You know, we're making money here. And you can imagine what happens after that. 16th of a second, Angela gives George 1,001 to 10,000 euros, and he gives her back euro number four. Everybody happy with that? 32nd of a, sec uh, of a second, Angela gives George... A thousand, no, 10,001 to 100,000, and he gives her back euro number five. Now, this is happening like the frog getting towards one second when the whole game will be over. Does everybody understand kind of what's happening? At the end of the game, the question is, how will the money be arranged? And there are three possibilities. And unfairly, and I don't know if the camera will pick this up, I'd like you to vote on it. Now, so the end of one second, when the whole game's over, there are three possibilities. Either George has all the money, or Angela's got all the money, or the money is split between the two. Do you agree? Is there anything else we can think of? No. Okay. So those of you who think that George has got all the money. Okay. So about four. Those of you who think that uh, the money is split between two of you. 
And those of you who think that Hungarians got all the money, do you know the answer? <laughs> if you tell me any number of euros, say 100,000 euro, then one over two to the hundred thousandth of a second before the end, and Gayla gets it back from George. So every euro in that bag eventually ends up in it with Angela. And that is an infinite process, and there is nothing wrong with that analysis. I think this process needs a name. I'm calling it quantitative easing. <laughs> um, and here's a snake. He did get to the end of the line, and there he looks sad. <clears throat> anyway, the, the notion of infinity became something that was really central to the kind of mathematics we wanted to do. And this notion crystallized in the work of a, of a German genius in the classic mode, who actually had a blighted life to some extent. There's pretty good evidence that the German uh, uh, academic mafia kept him from the top jobs. and uh, he, he was certainly a, a depressive, he, he had all sorts of psychological difficulties, but uh, he's a man of rare distinction, and he invented a magical subject. He and, and many others, there were precursors. No, no, no one mathematician invents a subject anymore, if they ever did. George Boole, in, in this country, or in, in the United Kingdom, invented, partly was involved in the invention of this subject. It's one of the most magical subjects in mathematics. It's a subject that you can learn without previous exposure to mathematics. In fact, I, I got so hyped on this idea that about four years ago, I actually ran a course on this subject from scratch to people who had no background in mathematics and they were amused. Uh, <laughs> set theory, it's a lovely idea. They teach it at school. It's a wonderful thing. And infinite sets are a, a crucial point of, this, of, of this, this, this topic. It is a delicious topic. So I, I recommend you might look, at, look, at, look into set theory. Um, and the thing about sets is that they can behave a bit like numbers. <clears throat> There's a kind of calculus of sets. You, you probably know some of the operations involved. If we're looking at a big set and then subsets of the set, there's a sort of way of adding two sets. Do you remember this called the union? And there's a way of multiplying, and calling, call the intersection, all the things that are in common. There are operations you can do, and in fact, the operations look very much like the kind of operations you, you do on integers, addition and multiplication and the rules that follow from that. And they form something called an algebra, which, when it was invented, was a... Uh, the, the creature, again, of, of Victorian magazines and, and, and academic interest, but has now become of central economic importance. The algebra is named after George Ball. It's called Boolean algebra. And it's the kind of thing you need to worry about when you're designing computer chips. So very, very big business. Now, this calculus, this way, this way of adding and subtracting, needs a special set. So this is the only time I bring in a Greek letter uh, in, into this talk, and the math mathematicians are very fond of Greek letters. When I was undergraduate, uh, postgraduate, we had a lot of German mathematicians who not only brought in Greek, they brought in Gothic, and it was hell trying to make sense of their lectures. But this is the only one I use, it's phi. It's for the empty set. Now, the empty set is a set with no elements in it. And if you find that a hard thing to imagine, well, it's the same kind of deal as the number zero. You know, there's nothing in it, sort of thing. It's a useful idea because then we can wave a magic wand in naive set theory and come up with a set for every property we can think of. So we could say, the set of people in this room who are really interested. Now, it, it, maybe there aren't any of you, but we say, oh, that's the empty set. So, uh, or maybe it's some of you. But anyway, so the empty set's a useful thing, and um, it, it, it's by a bit of logical gibberish, the empty set, phi, turns out to be inside every other set. And this is the sort of argument magicians love. And I hate it. 
Uh, it's like putting on socks that are too small, this argument. You know, it's just, I don't know any of you have done that, just me. But anyway, uh, this is the argument. The, the empty set is a subset of every set that you can think of for the following reason. If it's a subset of the set, then all of its elements must be inside the set. That's what a subset means. So we look at the elements of the empty set. There aren't any. So we can say that every single one of them, there aren't any, is inside every other set. Mathematicians <laughs> just love this sort of argument. <laughs> no wonder they had the reputation now. Anyway, so empty set's inside every other set. I'm going to show you another operation we do on set. It's called the power set. And this is, this is getting to be real mathematics. So I've got this set, I'll walk across the screen, this one, ABC. There are three, at least squiggly brackets mean it's a set. So there's three elements in this set, and I want to look at the set of all subsets of this set. Now, <clears throat> first of all, there's the set itself, ABC. That's a subset of the set. And then there's the two element subsets, AB, AC, and BC. Is everybody kind of with me? Okay, and then there's, there's the singletons, the single element sets, A, B, and C. And finally, there's the set that's inside every set. You get it free when you do set three, the empty set, phi. So when we, count, when we count these, we make it one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Nobody coughed. Uh, there are eight subsets of this three-element set. And that's one of the reasons they call it the power set, because eight is two to the power three. And here's a real theorem in set theory. Uh, one of the people I'm friendly with here is a distinguished academic called Robin Wilson. You may have, may have seen him. He writes very good books on things like Sudoku and the history of mathematics. He says every time you give a talk, you should do one joke and one proof. And if you're lucky, the audience knows which is which. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I'm going to do either in this, in this case, although I might tell you the joke about the mathematician, the biologist, and the physicist later, if you have questions. Remember that. But anyway, they told me today, Bob, don't tell them any jokes. Uh, a set with three element, elements has two to the three. A set with four elements has two to the four subsets. This is a powerful theorem. We can work out the number of subsets of a set by taking the number of elements and, and raising two to that power. That's why it's called the power set. A set with n elements has two to the n sets. So a useful idea. Now, one of the funny things about the power set is it always takes us up one. It takes up quite a lot. You can see in this particular case... 2 to the 3, that's 8. It's much bigger than 3. And this is a property that you can prove. I thought about proving it formally today, but decided against it. For any set, even an infinite set. If you look at all the, the whole numbers, and there's an infinite number of them, and you look at the subset of all, sorry, the set of all subsets of the real numbers, every way you can bunch a few of them, the power set turns out to be a set which is infinite, but can't be paired up with the numbers, the integers. So it represents an infinity that is bigger than the infinity of the integers. And it, it, I, it's very easy to prove this. It's a nice proof. Luckily, I won't do it today. Very, very simple proof. So the power set takes you up one. So if you start having infinite sets and the power set operation, you end up with a hierarchy of infinities. Not just one infinity, but many. Interestingly enough, the power sets of the natural numbers turn out to match, in Angela Merkel's finger way, with the, the, the set of all real numbers. There's things like e and pi that aren't, aren't, aren't whole numbers. So that, that's an interesting thing in itself. But when this was first noticed, around about 1900, 
people have started to wonder about this process. We now have a mechanism. We can turn a handle, we get a bigger infinity. When we look at that infinity, we take the power set, we get another infinity. This goes on forever. Amazing stuff. People started to say, well, okay, when you turn this handle and go to the next infinity, is there an infinity that's bigger than the one you started with and smaller than that one? Uh, and this became a central idea. Hilbert, in 1900, made this one of his key problems that he hoped the 20th century would solve. See, is the case that there's going to be an infinity between the two, or is it the case that there's not? Would you agree with that? This is called the continuum hypothesis. When you, when you restrict it to the situation I described, the integers of the real numbers, the question is, is there an infinity that's bigger than the whole numbers and smaller than the real numbers? But generally, for any set in the infinite set, you can say, as a generalized continuum hypothesis, if you go to the power set operation, it, have you got all the infinities that are possible? Is that the next biggest one? And this was a question that, that really became of central interest to mathematics. We have this increasing um, infinity, and we really want to know whether the continuum hypothesis is true. And if you don't understand the gibberish I've told you so far, just think of it this way. Is there an infinity that's bigger than the infinity of whole numbers and smaller than the infinity of real numbers? So we want to know this. And two of the great names of logic and mathematics came up with the answer. The answer took 20 years to squeak out. First of all, Kurt Gödel in the 1940s made a, a, a major contribution. And then in 1963, and I'm old enough to have been alive then, uh, Paul Cohen finished it off. So he came up with an answer about the, 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 the infinities. Uh, and the, the answer was, are you excited? <laughs> Does anybody know the answer? Oh, the guy at the back knows. <laughs> Here's the answer. Now, this is the triumph of death by Bruegel. It's one of my favourite paintings. You've got these mass ranks of skulls coming out into it. It's in the Prado. It's very hard to get a reproduction. I, I'm, I'm playing fair. This is from Wikipedia Commons, to whom I, I must make some acknowledgements. Because the answer, is there an infinity between the integers and the real numbers, was... <laughs> <laughs> Which is really sad. Mathematics, principally because our experience of it is based on perhaps Greek mathematics, perhaps unfairly. Um, we know very little about the mathematics of Babylonia and, and the Egyptians, except that it certainly existed. But we, we think of it in this austere classical sense as a monolith filled with certainties and exactness. And what happened in the 20th century was mathematics began to lose some of that certainty. And it's lost it here. This was one of a whole series of, of, of results that occurred in the 20th century and gave us un uncertainty. Because what they, the between them showed was you could have a mathematics that made sense where there was no in in infinity between the two, and you could have a mathematics that made sense when there was one. Had an infinite number of them. And there was no way to choose. You just choose yourself. Now, up to now, mathematics has been the thing that comes at us and scares us in primary school. It's just there. But suddenly there are various possibilities. And this burgeoned during the 20th century, so much so that many of our key ideas about uh, 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 the certainties behind mathematics have been challenged, sometimes quite radically. 
But set theory was a really nice subject. <laughs> I, 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 maybe it's just me. I, I mean, I used to read routing protocols for fun, so maybe, maybe, I, maybe it's just geeks who think it's good, but it's a lovely subject. There are some lovely books. There's one by Derek Goldwright right, from this university in, in Blackwell's right now, and there's a book by Halmus and I in set theory, which is in our library. So have a look at set theory sometime. It was so delicious. You could do all sorts of things with set theory. You could actually define what the whole numbers were using sets. Von Neumann came up with this in the 1920s and others. Uh, and Hilbert viewed the, the edifice of set theory built by Cantor as Cantor's paradise. Um, so set theory was really, really nice. And one of its key features, and the naive view, was if you give me any property at all, there will be a set of things with that property. Uh, we, we've seen <laughs> that I have to wheel in the empty set to make that entirely consistent. You know, the set with no elements. There may be no elements with this property, but it's, it's there, it's a set. So this is a naive view. But there are problems with it. Um, with, with, we're just saying, oh, we've got a property. Look at this. The smallest positive integer not definable in under 11 words. What do you reckon? Does that make sense? How many words do you need to define three? How many did you, is there a smallest integer that's not definable in 11 words? Who thinks there is? Nobody's run the vote this time. <laughs> Who thinks there's not? Who's abstaining? <laughs> I think it's reasonable to imagine there's the smallest positive integer not definable in under 11 words, isn't it? Count it. 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10. If that is a definition, it's got a contradiction built into it. It's sitting on a gunpowder keg, isn't it? It's going to blow itself apart. It's under 11 words. And defining something that can't be, you know, blah, blah, blah. So we've got to be really careful with, 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 with this business of waving a, a magic wand and assuming something exists. It's problematic. It gets worse. This occurred around about 1900. Um, it involves an analysis of a set that seemed to come up naturally. We've got sets. Okay, we understand sets. Some sets are members of themselves and some aren't. So the set of all cows is not a cow. So it's not a member of the set of all cows. Agreed? Okay, the set of all sets is a set. So it is a member of the set of all sets. Maybe, maybe the ones that are members of themselves are pretty odd, but, but they seem to be there. So we're going to look at this one. I came up with a, the, that was the best I could do. Oh, uh, I, I looked for a really fancy font in PowerPoint. There must be something better than that. But anyway, the set of all sets <coughs> who are not members of themselves. The best modern pure mathematics requires a linguistic precision that probably defeats me, but makes the subject entrancing. So we have to be careful with words here. The set of sets which are not members of themselves. So for example, the set of all sets which are not members of themselves, this set includes the set of cows. Do you agree? Okay, but it doesn't include the set of sets, because the set of sets is a set that is a member of itself. Okay? So we've got this set of all things that are not members of themselves. And of course, you can see it coming. What do we do next? We ask whether the set R is a member of itself. Okay? So you, you understand what R is, and you understand the question. Right. Is R a member of the set R? Okay, if R is a member of the set R, then R is a member of the set of all sets which are not members of themselves. So, because it's a member of itself, it can't be a member of itself. 
from which we deduce happily, because we're used to contradiction, that R can't be a member of itself. So agree, we proved it, R can't be a member of itself. Right, so R is not a member of itself. Now, okay, R is not a member of itself. R is a set and it's not a member of itself. What is R? It's a set of all sets that are not members of themselves. So R is not a member of R, so then R must be a member of R. <laughs> now, if I was small, I'd put my toys away and go home in tears. You know, I mean, this is Russell's paradox. There may be people who know what I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure I'm one of them. Uh, watching this, at least as a video, and they may, 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 may take exception, but, but certainly heuristically, uh, this is where things start to break down in set theory. This occurred around about 1900, um, and there were a lot of people doing a lot of work on set theory and, and, and how it related to the rest of mathematics, including a guy called Frager, and under some German who pretty much invented symbolic logic. And this paradox of set theory really meant that they had to go back to the laboratory and start working on what sets were and what properties were and how we could define membership and so on. Uh, Russell and Whitehead responded with an immensely complicated book called Principia Mathematica. Um, Frege more or less gave up mathematics. Actually, if you get into the history of this, it turns out that poor old George Cantor knew about this probably and just didn't think it was important. <laughs> it's like the guy with the photographic plate. But it really starts to, just, to send us out of the garden. This and other results, this, this is around about 1900, and more came. Theorems about the consistency of arithmetic, the very lifeblood of mathematics. Theorems about whether everything that was true of natural numbers could be proved turned out to be not the case in the work of people like Kurt Gödel and Alan Turing. Now, um, Russell's paradox is it is such an important thing that they teach it to, to, to philosophers, logicians, and of course mathematic, mathematicians. But it, it's fairly easy to get your hands around, isn't it? It's a nice idea. Uh, how would we, how would we uh, approach it now? Well, some people, the bulk of mathematicians, would say you've got to be a lot more careful about how you define properties. And you can't have a set of all sets. They would say that this is a proof, if you like, that there is no set of all sets. You can't just wave your hands and say you've got a set. You've got to be a lot tighter than that. And axioms grew up to try and codify the way that we should handle sets. But the trouble was that it, it later emerged in the work of Gödel that there were difficulties about proving whether these systems did not have hidden time bombs of this sort. And that work really destroyed Hilbert's paradise and created the modern era, era when people are still if they're practicing mathematicians working with naive set theory, try not to think about it. But the real logicians have worries about existence, even to the, to the extent of really extreme views about infinite sets generally and about what it means to make an assertion in mathematics. Extreme views associated with the logic of a, of a Dutch mathematician called Brouwer, who was regarded as a wild man in the 30s, but is now much more central to the way in which logicians and, and set theoreticians work. Well, um, I wanted to, I was going to do a little proof on Turing, because I said so in the, in, the, in, in the blurb. I could do that, if you like, but I suspect that I may have a sleeping audience, and I suspect that the cameras won't pick up my, my score. Uh, but it, you, you can, you, we could have some questions, or I could, I could go something, through something that Turing did. But um, in any case, thanks very much for, for listening. Uh, 
keep your eyes out for maths and computing courses, and particularly our online courses. We do a, lot, a couple of online maths courses. You don't actually have to come to Oxford to do our courses anymore. And do look out for that uh, course in June that I'm talking about. We do it every year with the British Society for the History of Mathematics. And it, it's an attempt to be as accessible as we possibly can. So, uh, thank you very much for listening. Are there any questions? Yes, why did you draw that on that? Well, I was hoping to do uh, uh, something, yeah. something kind of mind-boggling, um, <laughs> but I'm told the camera won't pick it up. Uh, do it anyway. Do it anyway. <laughs> well, it, it's me and kind of full-flown uh, Professor Braun brains. I'd much rather... Does anyone know this one? Now, one of the great things about this is it's like set theory. This is my favourite painting. You should, you know, all these children have favourite paintings. It's my favourite painting. Uh, it's, it's the marriage, the Anathene marriage. It was painted in 1434. It's by Van Eyck. I understand that Ike used to write A-I-K on his wood before he painted. And you, you can only see this with X-rays, and it says, Alsik can, as only I can. And you think only, only he could. Because this mirror has the backs of these two shown in the mirror. And two other people. Now, we could believe the painter be there, would be there, but who's the other one? I think it's Bertrand Russell. <laughs> oh, OK. Um, I'll, I'll give you a... If you like, wouldn't you prefer to have questions? Or? OK, I'll give you this rubbish then. I'm not even sure you can see it because I'm a spider. After the period I'm talking about, there occurred in 1930 a seismic shift in, in our understanding of, of symbolism and, and of, of logic and, and of what we could deduce, and that was associated with the name Kurt Gödel. When I was 20, I did a logic course, and I used to come home hugging myself in delight uh, thinking, oh, I know something these guys don't. Who, nobody's ever going to know about this. Ten years later, there are a million books on Kurt Gödel all over the place. Uh, but anyway, growing out of Gödel's work was um, an attempt to understand what sort of things could be computed. And this was associated with Alan Turing. Uh, I used to have mixed feelings about Turing, but the more I know about him, the greater he seems to become, to, it, it seems to me. But one of the things he was interested in was was every decimal computable? Now, he had to define what he meant by a computer. because We, we all know what a computer is, so I, I don't have to tell you what a computer is. You know what a computer you know, This could be a C program or something. Uh, but Alan Turing had to define it, and it is believed that he was in love with his mother's typewriter, so he made his Turing machine out of a typewriter. When I teach this kind of thing, I never touch Turing machines because they're impossible to program. They're pigs, you know. And they're, um, but but they're, they're very useful in logic and to... No, in the right mind, you've run a Turing machine. So anyway, the idea is, can you produce computer programs to produce every possible decimal? Now, these things, if you can see them, are decimals. Can you see the zero? Uh, A11, A12, A13, these are decimal digits. So maybe it's 0.11111, I don't know. Or maybe it's 0.31133113. Yeah, they're all decimals. Now, the idea is, is it possible for a Turing machine to produce every decimal you like? And, and what I'm trying to say is, um, okay, we're, we're talking about programs. Imagine every possible program that could be written. I'm not going to have input, so the, in, the, the values you want to input are going to be just part of the variables. But is it plausible to imagine there is the smallest C program you could write? Now, C has a syntax, and there is the smallest one you can, you can produce. And then there's the next biggest one, and the next biggest one, and so on. So, in theory, we could list all the possible programs that could ever be written. That, that, that is something that computer scientists are prepared to believe. 
you can actually work out the smallest C program, you know, so it, it's easy enough. And if, if you look at these programs, I'm going to call them program number one, program number two, program number three, and so on. And there'll be program number seven billion, and, 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 and we, can, we can work out what it is. It may take a long time, but we can do it. And these programs may or may not put out decimal integers. If they do put out a decimal integer, we'll just put it on this list. So if program number two puts out this in integer, we'll just put it there. But if it doesn't, never fear. We'll put out 0.0000. So we get a list associated with every program of the number it puts out, if it does put out the number, and if not, just 0.000. And, and the question is, does every decimal appear on this list? So we look at these decimals. We look at the first decimal for the first program, and we look at the first place. It is a decimal integer. It's 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, or 9. Whatever it is, we put something else down. So we write, it'd be nice to write on this screen, wouldn't it, my department with the screen? Uh, 0.B1, where B1 is different from A11. We look at the next one. Oh, you might say programs can loop. If they loop, I'm going to just put 0, 0, 0, 0, 0 there as a decimal. So, okay, I go to the second program and I look at the second digit in, A22, and I put something else that's different from A22, B2. And I look at the third program, and I put in a digit that's different from A332. That's B3. These are different from that one. All the way down the diagonal, I put something different. And I build a decimal that can't possibly be on this list. And there is the, pro there is the decimal that you can't possibly compute. Because every possible program is there, and that's what they compute, and that's not on that list. So there are numbers that cannot be computed. And then there are physical questions, you know, theoretical questions. They say, maybe the universe somehow computes this number. So, you know, how does that fit in? And logicians and metaphysicians and philosophers get very worried about this. But you may believe that that is a proof that this number cannot be computed. However, how did I build it? Well, I went down the list and I said, I'll just change the digits all the way down the diagonal. Um, that sounds like something you could put into a computer. And if you could, I'd just compute it, the wretched thing. So this is a little bit upsetting. And the answer to that conundrum is the assertion that if the program looped, I just put in zeros. Because the fact is, and this is much more subtle, that you cannot determine, in general, whether a program loops, loops or not. And that's called the halting problem. And that's a much deeper result, and that's one of the things that, that Turing is particularly famous for, that it is physically impossible to write an algorithm that will tell you whether a computer program in general will halt or not. And that's a much more subtle idea. And these are more results of this kind, but the argument of just knocking off the diagonal, Cantor's diagonalization argument, is exactly the kind of argument you can use to prove, do you remember that match that didn't work for the real numbers and the integers? That the match doesn't work. It was based on that, which is why I wanted to finish the talk on that. Thank you very much for listening and even pretending you're enjoying it. <laughs>